0: man of steel answers insight commentary episode 62 stronger wiser together open mind part three i have so
1: many questions then of course there's the question on everyone's mind then
0: i'll ask the obvious question
2: start asking questions you're the answer son
0: Welcome to Mosaic. I'm Doc and I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love the Man of Steel and look forwards to the future while learning from the past. This episode is part three on a mini-series of how these DC films encourage us to cultivate an open mind. This episode, we look at fighting fragility. We explore the cognitive distortions that torment us and how we can overcome them by growing stronger and wiser together. You're Stronger. Then you know. Trust me. This show dives deep into the Trinity Trilogy for answers and insight as we celebrate the films that give us so much. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love DC films and who love to chew their food. Well, it's been a minute. (laughs) I'm excited to encourage you on, so let's not wait any longer and just get right into it. Again and again, I've said how I love these films for their psychological truth. They teach us lessons on how our minds work, what pitfalls to avoid, and how to grow. Dr. Melanie Green is a psychologist and assistant professor at UNC. Here, she describes how narrative transport allows us to open and change our minds, especially with realistic fiction
3: narratives have a certain type of realism to them in that they're concrete, they're vivid. And so in a certain way they're they can be encoded by our minds in the same way that our real experiences are. And, you know, obviously it's not exactly the same, but we think about it as maybe being the next best thing. The realism in this sense is really more of a psychological realism than a literal realism. Things can be fictionalized. It can be, is this ringing true to the human experience? Are people actually, Acting in a way that real people would act. I mean, it's interesting. We did a study where we were kind of trying to look at what kinds of realism would bounce people out of stories. And so we had this kind of realistic one set on a college campus, and then we had a version of it that was set out in space. And then we had one that just had a bunch of mistakes in it to try to get people to think, oh, this author doesn't know what they're talking about. And surprisingly, we actually found that these sort of realism measures were higher for the story that was set in space, because it was basically like once they've accepted that narrative frame like okay this is the world that we're in we're in a world in the future or we're in a science fiction world whatever it is people kind of they give you that they're like okay we're in this frame and then it's like they're judging the realism within that so like okay given that this is the situation are these characters still acting in plausible ways does this still make sense to me psychologically
0: This episode, we're going to look at a trinity of truths from our Trinity Trilogy, the titular and eponymous Man of Steel, Batman v Superman, and Wonder Woman. Trying to teach truth is frequently facilitated by featuring the fallacy first. So they are in sum, one, safety first, avoid danger, discomfort, and challenge. Two, always trust your feelings. And three, life is a battle between good people and evil people. If these ring true, at least in part, it's because they've been embedded into our ordinary everyday experience. It's what we're taught, what we do, and how we live. But if we want to live better, extraordinary, heroic lives, we should consider challenging these precepts and seeing what these films show us about them. As heroes represent our best selves beyond our basest behaviors, we can instead aspire to strength, wisdom, and compassion. We're stronger. And wiser together. We are strong, not because of safety, avoiding risks, and stress, but because we embrace challenge, grow, and learn to overcome, not because we react upon our first feelings as truth, but because we can rule over our impulses with evidence based reasoning. And we do this better together, not through division, tribalism, and fault finding, but in seeking cooperation and common ground with compassion stronger, wiser, together. We can grow in all these regards, but strength is the closest cousin to the growth that we talked about last episode. For static and inert things, generally stress, strain, and shock simply serve to compromise the integrity of a thing. Dropping a glass, it might not break but often it will, and dropping it does not benefit the glass in any way. Being likely to break, we call the glass fragile. If a material bounces back quickly or is unlikely to break or deform to begin with, we might call this tough, resilient, or robust, like a rubber ball. But a ball does not benefit from the fall in any way. However, as systems and transformations grow in complexity, such impacts can begin to improve their strength. Steel for example, is arrived at after undergoing refinement and depending on its intended use, it may be subjected to different preferential stresses to increase its tensile strength, hardness, or other traits. How much more does this apply to complex Reactive systems like organic life, ecosystems, immune systems, markets, intelligence, etc. We know that physically, we need the routine stress of gravity and exercise to develop properly and strong. If you never experience resistance, your muscles and bones atrophy. Too much rest and you lose range of motion, your heart and lung function decline, and you risk a litany of conditions caused by clots. We see this in space, where astronauts suffer joint degeneration, and weakened muscle tone without gravity. And we see this here on the ground, with the elderly infirmed and inactive. So, are we more like a glass to be protected from any and all harm at all cost? Or are we beings born to adapt, grow, experience, and overcome, who need challenge to be ourselves and our best? I think the answer is obvious and well-established. From the 4th century BC, Mengzi writes, When heaven is about to confer a great responsibility onto any man, it will exercise his mind with suffering, subject his sinews and bones to hard work, place obstacles in the paths of his deeds, so as to stimulate his mind, harden his nature, and improve wherever he is incompetent. In the 1st century, Seneca wrote, Why then, do you wonder that good men are shaken, in order that they may grow strong? No tree becomes rooted and sturdy unless many a wind assails it, for by its very tossing, it tightens its grip and plants its roots more securely. The fragile trees are those that have grown in a sunny valley." And of course, Friedrich Nietzsche summed up, that which does not kill us makes us stronger. The point of this perspective is to get the most out of life. If we think life is freedom from suffering, but it turns out that life is suffering, we find ourselves hiding away from and failing to experience life. A growth outlook lets us turn that suffering into empowerment. Jerry Seinfeld said, quote, I don't mind suffering. You suffer in all things, work, relationships, and whatever else you do. Unless you're eating ice cream, you're suffering, end quote. Neurologist, psychiatrist, author, and Holocaust survivor, Viktor Frankl wrote, The way in which a man accepts his fate, and all the suffering it entails, the way in which he takes up his cross, gives him ample opportunity, even under the most difficult circumstances, to add a deeper meaning to his life. End quote. Now, some may protest.
4: You mock my pain! Life
5: is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something.
0: This view does not deny the pain of suffering, but it changes our mindset towards its benefits so that we can live full lives. Consider the following clip, sharing a spectrum of lessons afforded by challenges.
6: Commencement speakers will typically also wish you good luck and extend good wishes to you. I will not do that and I'll tell you why. From time to time in the years to come, I hope you will be treated unfairly so that you will come to know the value of justice. I hope that you will suffer betrayal, because that will teach you the importance of loyalty. Sorry to say, but I hope you will be lonely from time to time, so that you don't take friends for granted. I wish you bad luck again from time to time, so that you will be conscious of the role of chance in life, and understand that your success is not completely deserved, and that the failure of others is not completely deserved either. And when you lose, as you will from time to time, I hope every now and then your opponent will gloat over your failure. It is a way for you to understand the importance of sportsmanship. I hope you'll be ignored so you know the importance of listening to others. And I hope you will have just enough pain to learn compassion. Whether I wish these things or not, they're going to happen. And whether you benefit from them or not will depend upon your ability to see the message in your misfortunes.
0: It's for this reason that we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Romans 5.3.4 So taking these principles, let's see how they're illustrated in the Trinity Trilogy starting with Wonder Woman. So we can see Diana's development on two tracks, the physical and the truth. While Diana's childhood on the island is idyllic, it is also infantilizing in some respects. In Wonder Woman, we see Diana possibly stuck and stagnating as a child, maybe for centuries, millennia, or more. While Queen Hippolyta wants to protect her only child, Diana herself wants growth, training, adventure, rebellion, risk, weapons, danger, strength, and ability. Until Diana is challenged and her training begins, she effectively remains stuck at the age of seven in biology, maturity, and ability. However, in secret, she begins to train and begins to grow. At age 12, Hippolyta removes the restriction on training, allowing for intermediate challenges in order to face the greater challenge foretold. That means that Diana will fall, be struck, be cut, and bleed. She'll be yelled at, corrected, chastised, and attacked. However, it also means that Diana becomes an incredibly capable warrior, better than General Antiope. It is obvious that the stress of training prepares Diana for the stress of combat. And yet, as much as they train Diana physically, we still see the Amazons shielding Diana from the truth, from the world, from the full story of her origins. And that makes her more susceptible to psychic injury later. And indeed, physical jeopardy too, as Diana disastrously fixes her faith upon the tale of the godkiller sword, a fiction fashioned for her alone. We don't know if there might have been supernatural reasons for sheltering her mind and views. But in practice, we see that she has a very brittle worldview that gets refined by real world stressors for the better. By the end of the film, after all the challenges are faced and overcome, she adapts and grows and comes to a profound understanding of humanity that is able to withstand the darkness. As Alexander Solzhenitsyn writes, If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. End quote. Sound familiar? (laughs) More on that later. Opening herself to mankind subjects her to their darkness, but also their light and love. However undeserving they may be, she chooses to believe they're worth cherishing. For BVS, we can go back to our episode on growth and see two tracks of development. Batman's fixed mindset, which refuses to be challenged, and Superman's growth mindset, which exposes him to pain, but ultimately gives birth to the superhero ideal. You can go back and find a more detailed analysis. For now, let's just move on to Man of Steel. Man of Steel provides an inversion of Diana's development in Wonder Woman. While the Amazons helped Diana develop her powers and abilities, they hid her origins and handwaved the truth, rebuking her attempts to question conventional wisdom such that she grows up with an unerring certainty herself. Conversely, the Kents help Clark restrain and hide his abilities and powers, never knowing their limits, but they put a great emphasis on him knowing his origins, knowing himself, developing self-control, discipline, and humility, such that he's very deliberate and careful to question himself and consult with others. The preoccupation with safety meant that Clark would not test or know his limits, and this denied him the power of flight during his days in Smallville. A life-changing, soul-shifting, heart-lifting power. As we've discussed back in episode 26, his lack of experience using his powers made Clark frustrated with safety. I'm tired of safe, and may have contributed to his uncertainty and hesitation during the tornado tragedy. But what's critical to understand is that Clark refused to stay that way. The part of him that wanted to be the obedient son to stay safe at home, to maintain a comfortable life on the farm with his father. Love of that. Trust in that is part of what held him back in a moment of painful decision. After Jonathan is laid to rest, Clark spends the next 16 years sacrificing normalcy, material possession, relationships, and home, all so he can learn to save fearlessly, without hesitation, irrespective of the cost. Throwing yourself in harm's way to save your mortal enemy is not normal or instinct. Clark trained himself to do that as a decisive response to Jonathan's sacrifice. Along the way, Clark learns what it is to be poor, to not have papers, to be disrespected and overlooked, to live without prestige, without position, and without a name. Arguably the most powerful being on the planet, learning to live humbly, with restraint, always listening, rarely imposing, ready to save, and burn another identity in the process learning empathy, identity, and purpose. This period of character development would not be possible if the Kents did not instill it into him. The tools for self-control and restraint allowed Clark humility, allowed him humanity, allowed him free will and decision-making, intimacy, and trust. As an aside, it drives me nuts when people say that death by heart attack would have taught Clark the vital lesson that his powers are limited. How is that a good lesson for Clark, much less you or I? How dumb does Clark have to be to think that his powers are unlimited such that he needs that lesson? Doesn't that ignore a world of wicked problems and Sophie's choices and moral dilemmas that can't be solved by brute force or unlimited power? Isn't that exactly why the problem of evil doesn't Resolve faith. It's as poor a lesson as claiming that Superman's superpower is always being right. That arrogantly assumes that all dilemmas have a quote-unquote right answer. Is Clark under the misapprehension that if he can bench press more, run faster, hear further, he'll suddenly find acceptance, know his identity, and know his purpose? Is he so certain in this view that he needs Jonathan's death to humble him to think otherwise? No, that's ridiculous. Even if so afflicted, it be a stupidly specific lesson applicable only to godlike beings with their mastery over time, space, and reality, wholly irrelevant to you or I. No, the lesson that Clark learns in Man of Steel is completely applicable to you and I. It's not an issue of the power I had was not enough, or the impossibility regardless of power. All those
7: things I can do all those
2: powers
0: and i couldn't even save him it isn't an issue of if only i had more power i could have saved my father which is a meaningless truism for any solvable dilemma if we approach all problems as simply wishing for more power we accomplish and learn nothing no in man of steel it is i had the power but i didn't use it for other reasons this is the real challenge for Superman across the mythos, and for us in the real world. If you're listening to this podcast, you are not powerless. You are powerful beyond belief and stronger than you know. You have unprecedented access to the tree of knowledge, to see what can't be unseen, to know what's hidden, to learn practically anything coupled with almost instant and infinite access at your fingertips at all times able to fact check debunk research record publish posts send or share you live in a world where you can speak your mind start a business run for office get a degree or raise a family your voice can empower the world or tear a life apart with the click of a mouse if you make over twenty thousand dollars you are richer than over ninety six percent of the global population. Link in the show notes. Don't tell me that you're powerless. Our inaction is rarely a matter of powerlessness, rather, it's almost always a matter of will and sacrifice. The limitation isn't finding out that you're not omnipotent, or that the task is actually impossible. Instead, it tends to be social, societal, and psychological limitations that hold us back. We don't want to face the repercussions, the rejection, the rebukes, or revenge. We don't want the discomfort of revolution. In BVS, how is it that the jobless, abandoned, angry, and less-limbed Wallace Keefe is able to spark national unrest, against a godlike powerhouse. It's because he was willing to throw it all away. In his case, it was to tear down. Activating his power put him on par with 2 years of deliberate good works. And in that sense, Keith is closer to us than Clark. You have untold power to pull that trigger or click that mouse for ill. We are powerful. We are dangerous. Don't we need the teachings of the Kents in Man of Steel of discipline, self-control and restraint? far more than we need to quote-unquote learn that we're not all powerful. Isn't it more important to learn that power is for a purpose, and that we should carefully and diligently seek that purpose and proper time to use our power for good, even if it costs us, even if our character will be judged, even if we must face the world stage? The Kents teach Clark religion, philosophy, critical thinking, transparency, discretion, decision-making, patience, the importance of identity and purpose and character, that these are serious things sought after, slowly developed, and long-suffering, not simply supplied on a plate. The point of purpose should not be overlooked. You are powerful, and challenges allow you to grow. Does that mean that you should throw your power at anything and face challenges like a masochist? No, of course not. As in all principles, or the virtue ethics of Aristotle, there is a balance. Some, safety, don't declare your powers publicly, but not total safety. You still attend public school. Having a sense of purpose helps you understand where to place your power and how to approach risk and growth. In the following clip, astronaut Colonel Chris Hadfield shares.
8: Everything worth doing in life has risk. Learn to ride a bike. Learn to walk. When I was a kid learning to walk, I fell and cracked my skull, but I needed to learn to walk. Taking a test, getting married, getting a driver's license, all of those things, they give you an improved capability or an improved richness in life, but they all come with a degree of risk. That is exaggerated if the thing that you wanna do is fly a rocket ship. Rocket ships are dangerous. It's a controlled explosion. If you drew a cartoon of a rocket, what it would be would be a bomb with six seats on the top. I mean, rocket ships are crazy dangerous. On the first flight of the space shuttle and they blasted off out of Florida their odds of dying that day in the first eight and a half minutes were one in nine terrible odds one in nine they got away with it and we learned a lot from it but even when I flew on my first shuttle flight we'd improved it but the odds of dying that day for my crew were still one in 38 it's hard to get life insurance as an astronaut actually but the question you really need to ask then is: do I want to learn to walk do I want to ride this bike do I want to get married do I want to learn to drive a car what risks are worth taking In my life because even if you decide okay I'm gonna take no risk I'm gonna stay at home and hide under my pillow there's still risk with that and you're still gonna die eventually anyway so it's kind of a measure of what was worth doing in your life and therefore what was worth taking a risk for once you've got that behind you and said okay I'm gonna be an astronaut. I'm gonna fly a rocket ship. That's a risk I'm going to take. Now, it changes your whole job. Your job is not to be afraid. Your job is not to be an incompetent, nervous passenger. Your job now is to defeat the risk, like when you learn to ride a bike. If you just stay as a passenger on the bike, you're never gonna know what to do with the handlebars and you're never gonna master riding a bike. And once you can ride a bike, you know, you've got a freedom you never had before. And rocket ships are just the same. You have to decide what risks are worth taking and then start changing who you are learning how to turn the handlebars so that you can make this thing do something that otherwise might hurt you or kill you and then once you've got that done it can take you to places and give you richnesses in your life that you never would have had access any other way and in my case when you make it through that launch when you've guided that rocket up through the atmosphere and the engine shut off suddenly you're in the rarest of human experiences you're weightless And the world is pouring by at five miles a second. And you can see across an entire continent and you're, peering into something that is brand new for humanity. I think it's worth asking yourself, what risks are worth taking? And once you've decided to take them, then change who you are so that you can win, you can defeat, you can master that thing and open a door for yourself that otherwise was just shut.
0: Purpose gives drive and discipline to achieve new frontiers, to accept the risk, the challenge, and the suffering intended for something. He who has a why to live for can bear almost any how but the unachievable dreams that we can't enact don't lift us up rather they can kill us consider the following story of admiral stockdale listen for and compare his why
1: i would like to give you a way of thinking that has been enormously helpful to me and it was what we came to call the stockdale paradox the Stockdale Paradox was taught to us by Admiral Jim Stockdale, who was the highest-ranking military officer in the Hanoi Hilton, shot down in 1967, was there until 1974. They could pull him out at any time and torture him, and they did. They tortured over 20 times. And I had the privilege to get to know Admiral Stockdale, and I had uh, read his book, and I got depressed reading the book because it seemed so bleak, it seemed so difficult, it seemed... you know, It's like we can all endure anything if we know it's going to come to an end, and we know when, but what if you don't know if it's ever going to come to an end? And you certainly don't know when. So I asked Admiral Stockdale how he dealt with that. And he said, you have to realize I never got depressed because I never, ever wavered in my faith that not only I would get out, but I would turn being in the camp into the defining event of my life that in retrospect, I would not trade. Later, I asked him, I said, Admiral Stockdale, who didn't make it out as strong as you? And he said, easy, it was the optimists. I said, the optimist, you sounded optimistic. He said, no, I was not optimistic. I never wavered in my faith that I would prevail in the end, but I was not optimistic. I said, what's the difference? Well, the optimist always thought we'd be out by Christmas. Of course, Christmas would come and it would go. And then we were going to be out by Easter and Thanksgiving, and then Christmas would come again, and they died of a broken heart. And that's when Admiral Stockdale grabbed me by the shoulders and said, this is what I learned. When you're imprisoned by great calamity, by great difficulty, by great uncertainty, you have to, on the one hand, never confuse the need for unwavering faith that you will find a way to prevail in the end. With, on the other hand, the discipline to confront the most brutal facts we actually
0: face. And we're not getting out of here by Christmas. Unwavering faith and brutal facts. I love that. Confronting difficulty with purpose instead of mere wishful thinking. You've heard it said, hope deferred makes the heart sick. (laughs) That's another show. We have to distinguish between the dreams we work for and the dreams that are made up entirely of feel-good positive thinking and self-deception.
9: Nobody finds my facts annoying. Nobody finds my facts annoying. Nobody finds my facts annoying. You know, no matter how much I repeat it, I can't shake the fear that it's not true. And that's because mantras are often a pretty bad way to boost your self-esteem. Yes, while those new age phrases your life coach tells you to repeat can be helpful for some people, studies show that for others, they do nothing or even backfire and make them feel worse. In fact, if you're repeating a wide sweeping mantra of something aspirational like, I'm well-liked by everybody, it can sometimes convince you of the opposite because it triggers your brain to think of contradictory <laughs> examples. Moderate statements don't arouse as many contradictory thoughts. So, if you want to repeat statements to yourself, try to focus on statements you mostly believe to be true. Like, this mantra might not help me that much, or I am great at repeating words to myself while staring at a mirror.
4: Cause that's true. But research suggests, for some of us, these statements can have a negative effect. They found phrases that seem positive caused people with low self-esteem to feel worse about themselves, and people with high self-esteem only felt slightly better. In a follow-up study, the researchers found that when those with low self-esteem were asked to list negative self-thoughts with positive self-thoughts, their reported mood was better. It relates to the concept of latitudes of acceptance – that messages closer to your your position or beliefs are more persuasive than messages far from your position, and messages outside of your latitude of acceptance can just backfire and strongly reinforce your original position. Sometimes our psychology causes bad things to happen to good feedback. For some, thinking I will succeed without considering how causes a drop in motivation. Another study showed that visualising success can drain our ambition.
0: Instead, the dreams that make us strong and prevail are the ones that we can work towards and progress in. As Colonel Hadfield put it, a job. So let's get to work. If we are powerful and only growing stronger, how do we find out where to put our power to work, what dreams to aspire for, what purpose is our aim, and how to balance our principles? Well, that comes with the wisdom that we're going to discuss next. Complicated calculation, difficult deliberation, harsh realities, brutal facts, ugly truths, and unknown unknowns make us want to retreat to easier and intuitive guidance. Quote, always trust your feelings, unquote and it contains a germ of truth for when our conscience speaks or our intuitions are right. It is absolutely true that our feelings are compelling and can relay truth. However, it is not the case that we should be a slave to our emotions. This should be self-evident the instant you're dealing with a depressed or suicidal person. Telling them to trust their feelings of negativity and self-harm would be unconscionable and wrong. Instead, as intelligent, willful beings, we have the ability to talk back to our instincts, impulses, and feelings, to think critically, relying upon evidence, and telling ourselves the truth. The ability to mentally shape our world is, again, an ancient observation. Buddha. Our life is the creation of our mind. Shakespeare. There is nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Milton. The mind is its own place, and in itself it can make heaven of hell or a hell of heaven. Epictetus. What really frightens and dismays us is not external events themselves, but the way in which we think about them. It is not things that disturb us, but our interpretations of their significance. All of these sages are saying that our feelings, while compelling, are not always reliable. They often distort reality, deprive us of insight, and damage our relationship. After a stimulus, we often experience a feeling which becomes a filter for a stream of thoughts which can lead to problematic behaviors. These cascades can come from our autonomic fight, flight, or freeze system when we link danger to otherwise safe situations like social gatherings or public speaking, or other, un conscious associations that we've made from our experiences. And this can lead to intrusive or automatic thoughts which only serve to increase our anxiety, uncertainty, negativity, or other issues. Here, a song illustrates how our underlying feelings can lead to a cascade of unwanted thoughts.
7: Well,
9: I don't mind being alone no, no, I'm not afraid of what enters my mind when I'm so low. I'm fully capable of taking advantage of this time. No, I don't mind being alone with my thoughts. Uh oh, oh, I'm totally fine alone with my thoughts. Check it, life is so sweet when you take it light. Nothing can go wrong when the sun is bright That reminds me that I barely passed lifeguard school That's why that kid almost died in that pool That's a bad thought Oh-oh-oh-oh-oh-oh-oh-oh I don't like that thought No, 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 no Chill out The breeze in my hair, everything is free Nothing wrong with you, nothing wrong with me What happens if I get sent to hell? Will it be like that time I tore my ACL? That's another bad thought. Oh no, 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 no. Thought bubbles in my mind. Poppin' thought bubbles from time to time. I used to like guacamole, now I don't like guacamole. What if I stop liking other things I like? Like, what if I stop liking my mom? If it worked on guacamole, it could work on my mom. And now these thoughts are tapping me on the shoulder. I'm like, one second, bro, I'll be right over. And now the thought and I are fighting in our bar. And I can't beat the thought cause he's super swole Cause the thought hits the gym more than I do If I can't even hit the gym, how will I ever be a good father? Whoa, 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 whoa Gotta dial back these dark thoughts Dark like Edgar Allan Poe, 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 Poe Oh, these thoughts Complex like videos by LK, go, 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 go I just wanna chill on the lawn like the Obama's dog Bo, 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 bo cause I can't be alone with my thoughts.
0: <laughs> well, despite the comedy, it does a good job of illustrating how these thoughts can be completely arbitrary, disproportionate distortions and how they escalate and create a feedback loop, and how we struggle to fight against the symptom, not realizing the cause to the singer's credit he recognized the bad thoughts as bad whereas often people caught in such cascades just characterize the thoughts as theirs and true just recognition can be the first step
10: you know the ordinary ways in which we suffer depression anxiety the angst of life it turns out that uh, meditation generally makes people feel more positively it helps diminish anxiety, but it becomes particularly powerful when it's combined with a psychotherapy. The way this is usually done is with mindfulness on the one hand and what's called cognitive therapy on the other. Mindfulness allows us to shift our relationship to our experience. Instead of getting sucked into our emotions or our thoughts, which is what happens when we're depressed or anxious, we see them as those thoughts again, or those feelings again, and that disempowers them. There's actually research at UCLA that shows when you can name that feeling oh I'm feeling depressed again. You have shifted the activity levels neurologically in the part of the brain which is depressed to the part of the brain which notices, which is aware, the prefrontal cortex. And that diminishes the depression and enhances your ability to be able to understand it or to see it as just a feeling. So if you combine that ability with cognitive therapy, cognitive therapy helps you talk back to your thoughts. It's the basic realization in cognitive therapy is, I don't have to believe my thoughts. This is extremely important in people with chronic anxiety or chronic depression because it's our thoughts that trigger the anxiety, that trigger the depression. You know, the depressive thoughts are classic. I'm no good, my life is worthless, whatever it is. Those thoughts actually make us depressed. So if you use mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, on the one hand, you can see, oh, there's that thought again. On the other hand, cognitive therapy lets you talk back to that thought. Oh, I'm not so worthless. I've done some pretty good things in my life. There are people who love me, whatever may be, you can develop a habit of not letting those thoughts take you over, but countering them with actual evidence from your life that says, oh, they're not true. I don't have to believe them. And that is very relieving. The first study that used mindfulness-based cognitive therapy with depression was pretty spectacular. It was done at Oxford University, and it was done with people whose depression is so severe that nothing helps. No medication helps. Electroshock doesn't help. Medicine psychiatry doesn't know what to do. People get depressed very deeply they recover, then they get depressed again. So with that group, they use mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. They found that it cut the rate of relapse, of having depression again, by 50%. If this were a drug, some pharmaceutical company would be making billions of dollars. But it's not a drug. It's free, basically. So mindfulness-based cognitive therapy works very well for depression. The impact is palpable, and it turns out that Uh, mindfulness and other meditations, particularly combined with cognitive therapy, work just as well for anxiety or depression as the medications do, but they don't have those side effects.
0: Taking the time to recognize and reframe a trigger doesn't need to be so technical. When you start to feel fear come on, you can remove the intensity and even the effect of the feeling by refocusing your thoughts, as illustrated by this beloved classic song
7: bothers me and I'm feeling unhappy. I just try and think of nice things. What kind of things? Oh, well, let me see. Nice things. Daffodils. Green meadows. Skies full of stars. Raindrops on roses. And whiskers on kittens. Bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens. Brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favourite things. Cream-colored ponies and crisp apple strudels. Doorbells and sleigh bells and schnitzel with noodles. Wild geese that fly with a moon on their wings. These are a few of my favorite things. Does. you try it. What
0: things do you like? <laughs> and as she says, try it out yourself sometime. In the case of non-pervasive negative thoughts, this technique is highly effective. Well, these days, a lot of these reframing practices can fall under the general umbrella of cognitive behavioral
5: therapy, or CBT for short. Making sense of CBT, which stands for cognitive behavioral therapy. It combines cognitive therapy, examining the things you think, and behavioural therapy, examining the things you do. The word therapy might make you think of laying on a couch talking to a man with spectacles and a beard about your childhood while he analyses your dreams, but CBT is actually a very practical type of talking therapy, which focuses on goals and focuses mostly on the present day and things that are affecting you in your life now. The theory behind CBT is that the way we think about situations can affect the way we feel and behave. It does this by dealing with how your thoughts affect your feelings and behaviours, and teaches you coping skills for dealing with different problems. For example, you might make a simple mistake like say burning the dinner. This might make you think bad things and it might make you feel worthless and inadequate which could lead you to do things like withdrawing, snapping at your family or trying to avoid things which you think might go wrong. Or perhaps you've been invited out for drinks with some friends and you start thinking negative things. This might make you feel anxious and scared, which might make you do something like saying no to the invite, avoiding your friends completely, or using drink and drugs to cope with the situation. Over time, whether it's years, weeks, or months, this cycle of thoughts, feelings, and behaviors may have happened so many times, it's become like a habit. You start avoiding situations more and more, or automatically blame yourself if something goes wrong. And the more you do these things, the worse it can get. A CBT therapist will help you break this cycle and figure out what sorts of negative feelings, thoughts, and behaviors might be contributing to the problems you're experiencing. They will help you deal with your negative thinking and help you change your behaviour, both of which will lead to an improvement in your mood. CBT can be helpful for people with nearly every diagnosis you can think of and can be delivered through one-on-one sessions, in groups, self-help books, online or through a CD-ROM. That doesn't mean that CBT works for everyone though. Some people struggle with it because they find it just too hard to talk about their feelings. CBT is usually quite a short-term treatment and so you may find that your problems are too complex to deal with in the time. It can also be quite hard work, your therapist will probably set you homework, and you have to really practice the skills they teach you, to see a difference in how you're feeling. If you don't think CBT is the right treatment for you, you should be able to talk to your GP about what alternatives there are. As an example of what
0: CBT might entail, here's a clip with the triple R method, record, rationalize, and replace. And I might even add a fourth R, in that you must first recognize the event. Or a fifth R and repeat this exercise as necessary.
11: (laughs) Today, we're going to talk about automatic thoughts. They're those destructive and um, unreasonably negative thoughts that you have that make things go from bad to worse. Avoiding ATs feels as impossible as avoiding red lights when you're running late. You're going to hit one or two, or every single light from your house to work on that morning that your reports do at 9am and your boss is already on the edge and you might just get fired and then get evicted and see... Automatic thoughts can pop up and escalate as easy as that. Regardless of reality, ATs are the things that help you build a couple of red lights up to an Armageddon-scale catastrophe in a matter of seconds. We're going to show you how to manage those harmful automatic thoughts with healthier rational ones, and we're going to use our triple R exercise. You are going to record, rationalize, and replace your ATs. But first, how serious are ATs? A study at UCLA shows that people who got caught in cycles of automatic negative thinking became clinically depressed, self-critical, and less successful in both their work and personal lives. Here are some of the categories. Assuming or mind reading. Like when you are sure someone is mad at you even though you haven't spoken to them just because they walked in and didn't say hi. Shoulds, must and oughts. Those are the insane demands that we make upon ourselves in our quest to be impossibly imperfect. The fairy tale fantasy. Where we demand an ideal for our life and decide that anything less than that ideal just isn't fair. Overgeneralizing. Nobody likes me. I always ruin everything. And finally, catastrophizing. When you take a little problem and turn it into a big, terrible, life-changing event. How do we stop ATs? Good question. And the shorter answer is... We don't. But by being conscious of the fact that we're having them and working to replace them with rational thoughts, we can keep them from endangering our mental health. And that is today's exercise. All right, everybody, it's time to learn the three R's. Step one, record an upsetting event. When something upsetting happens during the day, describe it and record it in excruciating, painful detail. For example, (laughs) today I found out that I got a C on my midterm. (laughs) Step two, rationalize. Now it's time to think about the automatic thoughts associated with the event. In column one, write down each AT you had about the upsetting event. For example, I am never gonna graduate. In the second column, try and label each distortion. Some ATs might be rational, but most won't be. They'll most often fall into one of the categories we discussed. I am never going to graduate, falls into the category of catastrophizing. Step three, replace. In the third column, respond to each distorted AT. Talk back. Get those negative thoughts off your chest. And if it's hard to do that, try to imagine what you'd say to a friend who is struggling with their own AT and say it to yourself. When you're responding to those ATs, ask yourself some questions like, what's the evidence for this response? Is this a believable outcome for my situation? Will the world end if I get a C on this midterm? Of course not. So as time goes on and you're more used to responding to your ATs instead of letting them take over your life, you should be able to replace those ugly negative thoughts with more rational ones. Let's recap. To keep your automatic thoughts from ruining your mood and running rampant, you're going to record upsetting events, rationalize them by addressing each irrational thought, and replacing the irrational automatic thought with a rational one. The world is not going to end.
0: If you're not a fan of that mnemonic, stick around, and I'll teach you the one that I was trained in a little later. Okay, so now that you have a primer on why we talk back to our feelings and CBT, how does this apply to these DC films? Well, as I said earlier, the first step is recognition. When there's no name for a problem, you can't see a problem, and when you can't see a problem, you pretty much can't solve it. CBT practitioners have cataloged common cognitive distortions to be confronted, and which we can see illustrated truthfully in these DC films. You heard some of them described in the last clip. Different practitioners use different terms or slightly different definitions or sets, but the general idea is the same. Common, exaggerated, inaccurate, or irrational thought patterns that lead to errors in thinking. It should be noted that cognitive distortions are denoted as bad, as they lead to bad outcomes and poor mental health, compared to, say, cognitive biases or heuristics, which can lead us astray but are also beneficial at times. As was mentioned before, CBT tends to be very practical, practical and present. Rather than getting hung up on definitions and theory, if it's something adversely affecting your life, it's worth looking at it under the distortion lens. Well, we've got so many distortions and films and characters to talk about, I don't think I need to hit them all. Let's just try to highlight a few. I'll give the distortion and then illustrate it with a DC film and discuss. So starting with emotional reasoning. This is letting your feelings guide your interpretation of reality. And as we've talked about across multiple episodes, one of the pillars of persuasion is emotion precisely because it can override reason. Even if there are more logical, reasonable, and healthy responses, emotions are so present, individual and autonomous, we give them the weight of truth and act upon them accordingly. In BVS, Alfred specifically calls out emotional reasoning with the line, the fever, the rage, the feeling of powerlessness that turns good men cruel. In other words, but for the feelings, rage, and powerlessness, good men would not act cruel. Rationally, logically, reasonably, they'd act and be good. In Batman's case, the flood of emotions felt during the BZE such as fear, anger, shame, grief, and powerlessness led to the emotional reasoning that Superman is a threat to safety and deserves death. Alfred's admonition is the rational response. If I am feeling these negative emotions, isn't it more likely that my actions will be cruel rather than good? what would a good man do uninfluenced by these emotions? In Wonder Woman, one example of emotional reasoning is when Diana is in anguish over the atrocity at Veld. In her grief and regret, she accuses Steve of stopping her because he's under the influence of Ares, corrupted as all mankind are. It's difficult to imagine reining in one's feelings in a moment like that, but if she did or if she could, she would have acknowledged that Steve had been a faithful companion with good intentions throughout their journey. She might have accepted that he stopped her in good faith for rational reasons, and that Aries does not have to be the only explanation. Then, she might be able to grieve with Steve and plan and act with him instead of rejecting him and running away. In Man of Steel, after the banishment of the Black Zero, Zod is filled with anger and contempt which he fully intends to extract in blood from humanity and in pain from Kal-El if he gets in the way. He is driven almost entirely by emotional animus in that moment. Yet looking back, Zod's stated paramount interest is the resurrection of New Krypton, and if he could look at the situation clinically or accept some level of compromise, Zod would see he still had many of the ingredients needed to a kind of new Krypton. He still had the scout ship's database and technology, some part of the Genesis Chamber, the Codex in Kal-El, and superpowers which could include immortality to give him the time to achieve his ends. But compromise, surrender, and alliance are not in his toolset. Zod is an unfortunate example of Maslow's hammer. When all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. When you've been born, bred, and trained only to look at everything through the lens of warfare, then everything is war. And that's part of what this episode aims to do. If not give you the tools, at least bring them to your attention so that you can start to acquire, train, and use them yourself. Instead of getting stuck with a default response because all you have is a single hammer to hit with. Okay, I went on too long with that one. Let's do negative filtering. Negative filtering is when your mind focuses on the negatives and struggles to notice the positives. The most obvious example of this is Wallace Keefe in BVS. Keefe has an entire wall dedicated to Superman press clippings, praising his heroic deeds, but Keefe only uses it to fuel his frustration. There's no question, Keefe has suffered incredible loss because of the Black Zero event, but he can't see that he was saved on that day too. He lived through the BZE and was rescued when so many others were lost. If somebody remains fixated on loss, anger, pain, powerlessness, and revenge, how does that help their mental health? It may be a bridge too far to say that he should focus on the miracle of being saved with gratitude, but the facts support alternative narratives that are better for his mental well being. If a wall of superheroics can't elicit a single positive thought, maybe change that wall. <laughs> Pervasive through BVS is negative filtering generally, with respect to Superman's actions. For all the damage done during the BZE, the world loses sight of the fact that Metropolis, Gotham, and the entire world was saved. When Superman intervenes in Nairobi, short shrift is given to the fact that Superman saved the compound from the indiscriminate and innocent casualties of a missile strike. During the rescues, the emphasis is placed on media criticism instead of the relief of the rescued, or shows of support, objectively. If you think through the heroics, you'll have a more balanced view of Superman's actions. But if you give in to the filter, don't think critically, and don't chew your food, you'll be inclined towards the negative. The film is intentionally reminding us that distorted thinking doesn't just start in our heads, like with Wallace Keefe, but can come from what we choose to take in and what we're being fed. Consider what's in your feed. Okay, moving on. Similar to negative filtering is discounting positives. Here, you reflexively rebut, counter-trivialize, discount downplay, or deny positives when they're brought to your attention in order to maintain a negative outlook. This is especially destructive because it takes what could have been precious positive affirming input and through reverse alchemy turns it into discouragement. With filtering, you seem unaware or oblivious to the positive, but here, you automatically shoot down any positive presented. For example, all too common, all compliments are just people being nice, and all achievement just dumb luck. Well, in BVS, there are two examples of this between Bruce and Alfred. This conversation hits this cognitive distortion on the nose. This may be the
2: only thing I do that matters. Twenty years of fighting criminals amounts to nothing. Criminals like weeds, Alfred. Pull
0: one up, another grows in its place. Bruce's negative outlook is that his career didn't matter. But Alfred tries to affirm his effect and encourage him. Bruce immediately discounts it as trivial cyclical gardening. To break through this distortion, Bruce would have to actually confront in detail his belief and career. For example, Bruce could consider the individual victims spared, saved, and rescued to challenge his nihilism. Alright, in another example, Alfred tries to convince Bruce not to go to war.
5: He is not our enemy, not today. 20 years in
2: Gotham, Alfred, we've seen what promises are worth, how many good guys are left, how many stayed
0: that way. Bruce is discounting today, the present, and discounting Superman's good deeds and reputations as a good guy to date. Bruce is saying that promises are worthless and that Superman's fall is inevitable. So why not war today? This line of thinking is dangerous because it has the power to turn any good guy into an enemy. Anyone who could have been an ally for justice gets marked for destruction. In the real world, ordinarily very few people are our outright enemies, intending or capable of destroying everything we value or hold dear. In fact, most probably share many of your values and are quite capable of helping us achieve mutual positive ends. Yet, if you seem to find your world populated with enemies, consider. Maybe you're perceiving them through this distortion, discounting their ability to be your ally or the good that they've already done before you call for their head on a platter. Okay, let's do a quick one, overgeneralizing. This is perceiving or assuming a global pattern of negatives on the basis of a single incident or encounter. In BVS, this is captured by Bruce saying, We're criminals, Alfred. We've always been criminals. Nothing's changed. I'm not going to get into it here, but it's obvious that criminals are not a monolithic class in all regards, and plenty of ink has been spilled and keystrokes made to explain the significance of Batman employing lethal force or not. Alfred, of course, disagrees. This is a distortion where it helps to try to falsify your assertion by thinking of counterexamples or ways to distinguish. We see this executed perfectly in Wonder Woman by Steve Trevor when he characterizes himself as a counterexample or distinguished from her disreputable overgeneralization of a liar, murderer, and now a smuggler. And as I've mentioned before, bonus points to Trevor for avoiding Diana's defensiveness by using himself as the example instead of her. He didn't say you went behind your mother's back, you shot someone on that beach, and you were going to smuggle the sword and me off the island. Who are you to judge us? <laughs> Right, Going back to BVS, this is obviously how Superman ends up being perceived by Bruce, Wally, in Nairobi and in DC. Despite saving the world, despite two years of doing good, despite ongoing rescues, the factual numeracy of those other events do not weigh on the minds of these characters as much as their individual traumatic experiences. Bruce objectively has seen Superman in action countless times without incident marked on his map. But because he has experienced Superman as a disaster, that's how he overgeneralizes Superman's impact. On some level, Bruce is aware of the disconnect in his own head because he trivializes and downplays Superman's achievements and seriousness by reducing them to saving cats out of trees. But in the very next sentence, he talks about Superman's ability to burn it all down. Well, this could also be seen as an example of our next distortion catastrophizing. And this is leaping to focus on the worst possible outcome and seeing it as most likely. We heard an earlier example before, one red light, and now they're worried about being evicted. The scenario is not irrational in the sense that they are impossible, but rather the likelihood and the focus on that possibility are distorted. Bruce's restatement of the 1% doctrine is an example of catastrophizing. Jesus, Alfred, count the dead. Thousands of people. What's next? Millions? He has the power to wipe out the entire human race. And if we believe there's even a 1% chance that he is our enemy, we have to take it as an absolute certainty, And we have to destroy him. Now, from a philosophical standpoint, the fact that the 1% doctrine actually includes a rational calculation of risk complicates the analysis. Which is to say, from a strictly rational perspective, you could support the doctrine in theory. But here, our emphasis is on the psychological analysis, where we presume that the percent chance is actually wrong, inaccurate, and overblown. Well, another example of catastrophizing not muddied by including actual probability is this exchange.
6: Now, Rocky is radioactive, but what he needs from you is an import license. And why would we want to weaponize this material? As a deterrent, a silver bullet to keep in reserve to use against the Kryptonians, so the day does not come, madame, when your children are waving daisies at a reviewing stand.
0: Did you see it? <laughs> Lex goes from, license please, to, or you'll be enslaved by a tyrant Kryptonian in seconds. <laughs> well, in Wonder Woman, we have this exchange.
7: And, and- was your duty to simply give them a book. No. You didn't stand your ground. Yeah. You didn't fight. Because there was no chance of changing his mind. This is he just Ares! And he's not going to allow a negotiation or a surrender. The millions of people you talked about, listen. they will die.
0: They have, in fact, lost an argument, but Diana takes that and turns it into the death of millions. Okay, final example, in Man of Steel, Dr. Hamilton says, you could be carrying some kind of alien pathogen. And again, that's not an irrational thought, but the tendency to jump from, you're an alien, to, we may all die from being exposed to your yet unseen alien disease, is another example of catastrophizing if Hamilton became overly preoccupied with it, considered it likely, or denied any countervailing evidence. I think, as presented, it's just an open-ended question which Superman addresses by sharing how long he's been on the Earth. So perhaps I should point out that these are attempts at illustration and not diagnosis. The point of this toolbox isn't to go around judging the mental state of others. We are notoriously bad at knowing what others are thinking, which leads to the next cognitive distortion of mind reading, where we assume what others think, often with a negative slant and without enough facts. Especially when we don't have the whole story, we can spin entire narratives and motives to animate the unseen that could be completely wrong in actual fact. In Man of Steel, we have this exchange between Clark and Martha.
7: And I worried all the time.
0: You worried the truth would come out?
7: No. The truth about you is beautiful. We saw that the moment we laid eyes on you. We knew that one day the whole world would see that.
9: I'm just I'm worried they'll take you away from me. <laughs> I'm not going anywhere, Mom.
5: I promise.
0: So had this gone unsaid and Clark continued to believe that his mom was fearful of the truth coming out, it would constitute a distortion of mind reading. But here, by vocalizing his belief, he gives Martha an opportunity to update his incorrect assumption, which is a solid way to combat misunderstanding. Talk to one another. In BVS, Clark does the same thing with Lois. I didn't kill those men if that's what they think, if that's what you're saying.
7: Well, I'm saying
11: I want to understand what happened.
0: Lois's correction keeps the misunderstanding from going any further. But really, this is just the tip of the iceberg. It should be no surprise that a film built around misunderstanding, being quick to judge, acting on impulse and disinformation before we have all the facts, is filled with examples of mind reading gone awry. The media seem to misunderstand Superman's every action, down to claiming that he rebukes America. Perry thinks Clark's fundraising invitation comes from some crone with a thing for nerds. Bruce believes he's stolen files from Lex without his knowledge. Swanwick accuses Lois of inventing conspiracies to clean up Superman's image and her own. Bruce insists to Diana that you don't know me, but I've known a few women like you. Perry accuses Lois of using the paper to pass notes to Superman. Alfred is mistaken on why Bruce wants the kryptonite to keep it out of Luther's hands to destroy it. Clark believes the photos of Santos come from a whistleblower, everyone believes that Keefe intended to die until Lois uncovers otherwise, Batman believes that Superman thinks of himself as a god, and on and on and on it goes. As a central theme to the film, we could do an entire episode just on this, but for now, we've just gotta move on. There are certainly a number of misunderstandings in Wonder Woman as well, from the misapprehension of Steve's motives, to Diana's prejudices, and of course, the twists surrounding the ultimate villain. (laughs) Look, let's just say that there's an opportunity here for us to outperform our heroes. (laughs) Okay, let's keep going. The next three are especially related, so let's just do them all together. Dichotomous thinking, labeling, and blaming. Dichotomous thinking is seeing everything in a black and white, all or nothing, or binary terms. This means focusing on absolutes and extremes while ignoring nuance, middle ground, or common ground. In BVS, Batman has his diamond absolutes and taking this as an absolute certainty, branding himself as a criminal. Lex feeds into that dichotomy, god versus man, day versus night, when in fact our two heroes share so much in common, their mother's names and beyond. In Man of Steel, Zod's vision of Krypton is completely uncompromising and incapable of considering coexistence. Dichotomous thinking leaves you prone to an us versus them division which leads to labeling That's where global negative traits are assigned, often in the service of dichotomous thinking. So the film Man of Steel actually goes out of its way to combat this by giving counterexamples for practically every role or group. I've talked about that a ton in previous episodes, I'm not going to do it again here. In BVS, characters like Lex leverage labels like God, Man, and Devil to set up those dichotomies, and in Wonder Woman, the label is that all mankind is corrupted and undeserving. Okay, so this line makes it easy to blame. Which is exactly what it sounds like. Focusing on another as the source of all negativity, refusing responsibility or change because it squarely rests on the blamed. Zad doesn't consider his own lack of compromise, extreme and violent ways to be the issue, it's all Kalel. Batman, Lex, and others blame Superman. Diana blames Ares. You can dissect the specifics of each of those distortions on your own. Again, the purpose isn't to make you recklessly diagnose others or become anxious that you have these. This was just a quick and dirty showcase to help you identify and engage your own thoughts and feelings. As is oft quoted, between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. These DC films do not just inundate us with dysfunction, but gives us a glimpse into Viktor Frankl's insight. Our power to choose a response that fosters growth and freedom. While there's no full-on formal CBT, several scenes model the tools and techniques of CBT accurately and successfully. If I had the time, I'd endlessly gush on how the Kents did so well and accordingly Clark. It is absolutely my favorite thing about the character of this Superman. Everything comes from a realistic psychological foundation rather than being taken for granted, assumed, or just an artificial facade. This is a Superman that is always extremely aware of his own thoughts, emotions, and beliefs, and who's been trained to identify his negative and inaccurate thinking so that he can reshape and replace it humbly with gratitude To be a better man, a better hero by way of process and growth. Not just emerging out of a cave magically fully formed. In the grade school closet scene, we see an escalation so common to psychiatric conditions like panic or anxiety attacks. How can I help you if you won't let me in? Martha reframes the stimuli and replaces it with a narrative that creates space, calm, a concrete objective, safety, and acceptance. She empowers Clark to remake the world with his mind to his own benefit, to instill him with the instinct to seek assistance, and that it's okay to be vulnerable to the ones you love. And in every talk with Jonathan, they talk through Clark's feelings. Instead of sugar-coated positive thinking, they confront brutal truths, backed by an unwavering faith in an ultimate purpose, a larger goal, a reason for all these challenges, giving him endurance. Jonathan draws out Clark's insecurities, confusion, and pain, diffuses the emotion, and replaces it with a story. Of significance, purpose, meaning, and calling. So Clark perseveres and his character grows. That means that when the time comes, because Clark's cultivated wisdom, he can trust his gut. What does your gut tell you? As we've covered this episode, Father Leone's question could have been disastrous with somebody completely controlled by their emotions or compromised by distorted thinking. But the Kents raise Clark to question doubt, and Socratically seek so that his senses are grounded in more than a feeling. Who is he to stand up to General Swanwick or talk back to General Zod? That courage doesn't come from some magical moral compass, but came from the Kents, and that carries on and into BVS. When Clark questions the world, he calls his mom. And when he's been completely overwhelmed, he makes space. He gets away from the din, the immediate emotions, the outside inputs, and he creates the journey. The hike allows him to be mindful, to separate emotion from thought and thought from behavior until he's sorted. And again, Jonathan walks him through his emotions, the hard facts, and replaces the negative patterns with a story of empathy, hope, love, and belonging. Okay, I gushed anyway. And that's just Superman. We could have talked about Batman and Wonder Woman not giving in to anger during their decisive battles. Believe me, this could be far longer if I just systematically went through the steps of CBT one by one, scene by scene, instead of this rambling stream of praise. <laughs> but remember that CBT is just one tool or framework for maintaining mental hygiene. There are many other ways to create a space between the stimulus and that help us to select a healthy response. Meditation makes us mindful. Religion can give us structure and rituals to reflect on gratitude or grace, faith or fellowship. Therapy can help us tell new narratives about our painful pasts or divorce incorrect associations in our subconscious. Community can challenge us to keep our thoughts and actions socially accountable. And so on and so forth. Now notice the role of others in these ways. And that's going to help us transition into our last section on Togetherness. So a caveat on rationality. Last episode was a reminder that we can grow if we have a little humility. But so what if I can't trust my feelings? If we're all capable of logic and reason, why do I need anyone else? Well, apart from the fact that I start every episode saying reasonable minds may differ, where. Terrible at gauging our own rationality and incredibly good at rationalizing anything that we think or feel. The conscious part of your mind acts like a press secretary, creating the explanations after the fact, spinning it, and justifying it until we're completely convinced it's our own valid position. Your inner press secretary may be especially adept at Spin City, finding select evidence and arguments, digging up the past, and persuading you all without you realizing it. The entire process of thought is opaque hidden to us, so we think ourselves as scientists discovering the truth accurately, objectively, and dispassionately, but without the insight of disconfirming, diverse, and oppositional others, most times our reasoning was automatic, instant, and even retroactive. Behave, by Robert Sapolsky, is a challenging book on that subject, but here's a more accessible clip on Confabulation by David McRaney. Confabulation.
12: Confabulation. The misconception, you know when you are lying to yourself. The truth, you are often ignorant of your motivations and create fictional narratives to explain your decisions, emotions, and history without realizing it. Your brain lies to you, and you go about your business, none the wiser. Just as the brain fills in your blind spot every moment of the day without your consciously noticing, so do you fill in the blind spots in your memory and your reasoning. Consider how often this seems to happen especially if you are in a relationship with someone who can call you out in this way all the time. You do this so much and so often that you can't be sure how much of what you consider to be the honest truth about your past is accurate. Split-brain confabulation is an extreme and amplified version of your own tendency to create narrative fantasies about just about everything you do and then believe them. You are a confabulatory creature by nature. You are always explaining to yourself the motivations for your actions and the causes to the effects in your life, and you make them up without realizing it when you don't know the answers. Over time, these explanations become your idea of who you are and your place in the world. They are yourself. The neuroscientist V.S. Ramachandran believes your sense of self is partly the action of mirror neurons. These complex clusters of brain cells fire when you see someone hurt themselves or cry when they scratch their arm or laugh. They put you in the other person's shoes so you can almost feel that person's pain and itches. Mirror neurons provide empathy and help you learn. One of the greatest discoveries in recent years was to find that mirror neurons fire also when you do things. It is as if part of your brain is observing yourself as an outsider. You are a story you tell yourself. You engage in introspection, and with great confidence you see the history of your life with all the characters and settings, and you at the center as protagonist in the tale of who you are. This is all a great, beautiful confabulation, without which you could not function. As you move through your day, you imagine a wide range of potential futures, potential situations outside your senses. When you read news articles and non-fiction books, you create fantasy worlds for situations that actually did happen. When you recall your past, you create it on the spot, a daydream part true and part fantasy that you believe down to the last detail. How your mind works is something you can never access, and although you often believe you understand your thoughts and actions, your emotions and motivations, much of the time you do not. The very act of looking inward is already several steps removed from the thoughts you are remembering. This, however, doesn't prevent you from assuming you really do know, you really can recall in full detail. And this is how narratives begin. This is how confabulation provides a framework from which to understand yourself. As the psychologist George Miller once said, it is the result of thinking not the process of thinking that appears spontaneously in consciousness. In other words, in many ways you are only reporting on what your mind has already produced, instead of directing its performance. The flow of consciousness is one thing, the recollection of its course is another, yet you usually see them as the same. This is one of the oldest concepts in psychology and philosophy, phenomenology but you should take your own perception with a grain of salt. In the Miller and Nisbet paper they cited many studies in which people were aware of their thoughts, but not how they arrived at them. Despite this, Subjects usually had no problem providing an explanation, an introspection. Nisbet and Miller set up their own study in a department store where they arranged nylon stockings side by side. When people came by, they asked them to say which of four items in a set was the best quality. Four to one, people chose the stocking on the right-hand side, even though they were all identical. When the researchers asked why, people would comment on the texture or the color, but never the position. When asked if the order of the presentation influenced their choice, they assured the scientists it had nothing to do with it. In these and many other studies, the subjects never said they didn't know why they felt and acted as they did. Not knowing why didn't confuse them. They instead found justification for their thoughts, feelings, and actions, and moved on, unaware of the machinery of their minds. How do you separate... Separate fantasy from reality. How can you be sure the story of your life, both from long ago and minute to minute, is true? There is a pleasant vindication to be found when you accept that you can't. No one can, yet we persist and try. Who you think you are is sort of like a movie based on true events, which is not necessarily a bad thing. The details may be embellished, but the big picture, the general idea,
0: is probably a good story
12: worth hearing about.
0: There are countless times and ways that our rationality fails us, and when we might give in to dichotomous thinking, which feed into tribal tendencies, us versus them, building coalitions based on a common enemy, all too easily. We are swept up by the mob, our prejudices, and into taking sides. When we look at life as a battle between good people and evil people, we become obsessed with distinguishing ourselves, labeling, blaming, and all-or-nothing absolutes and attitudes. The slightest misstep, provocation, or signal is justification to call out, condemn, mob, and attack. It is eerie how positively prophetic BVS was on our contemporary condition in this respect. Just look at how Superman gets taken down by the mob mentality in BVS in such a real way. Sociologist Albert Bergenson observed the characteristics of witch hunts when reflecting upon the Chinese Cultural Revolution, which led many professors, intellectuals, and university administrators to be imprisoned or murdered. According to Bergenson, witch hunts 1. arise quickly, 2. involve crimes against the collective, 3. the charges are often trivial or fabricated, and 4. defending the accused is feared. You can see these features mirrored in Superman's persecution. Bergeson writes, Witch hunts seem to appear in dramatic outbursts. They are not a regular feature of social life. A community seems to suddenly find a threat to the collective whole. A community becomes intensely mobilized to rid itself of internal enemies end quote. And he cites to the French reign of terror, Stalinist show trials, and McCarthyism. We see this in BVS. Whereas Superman has been honored and enjoying a two-year honeymoon status quo, the love affair ends abruptly, and there's a sudden panic to condemn Superman. BVS frames it in the context of American culture, the American government, and as an American problem because Superman is seen as an American internal threat. Okay, on Crimes Against the Collective, Bergenson the various charges that appear during these witch hunts involve accusations of crimes committed against the nation as a corporate whole. It is the whole collective at stake, the nation, the people, the state, which is being undermined and subverted." End quote. And again, this is clearly expressed in BVS as its central institutions come to bear against Superman, the government, the fourth estate, the rich and powerful, and even the protest of the people. Senator Finch's hearings, the press and media cycle, Luther and Wayne, and the protests sparked by Wallace Keefe. They claim his unilateral actions threaten them all, that his agenda is unknown, and that he represents an existential threat, and that he has already brought war, death, and destruction to them all. And yet, on the triviality and fabrication of charges, Burgesson writes, These crimes and deviations seem to involve the most petty and insignificant acts which are somehow understood as crimes against the nation as a whole. We use the term witch hunts as innocent people are so often involved. And falsely accused. This is absolutely the case in BVS. Nairomi and the Capitol bombing were manufactured by Lex Luthor. Saving people in other nations is taken as an affront to the United States. Simply leaving to avoid any additional collateral damage if the bombings continued levels charges of abandonment, if not involvement, narratives of godhood tyranny and oppression are thrust onto Superman, irrespective of his actual intentions, thoughts, or actions. His crime appears to be merely existing. Finally, in terms of defending the accused, the commentator writes, When a public accusation is made, many friends and bystanders know that the victim is innocent, but they are afraid to say anything. Anyone who comes to the defense of the accused is obstructing the enactment of a collective ritual. Siding with the accused is truly an offense to the group and will be treated as such. If passion and fears are intense enough People will even testify against their friends and family members. End quote. And again, the sociological depth of BVS is spot on. The CIA and Swanwick will not exonerate Superman despite knowing his innocence. Lois finds herself disregarded and accused of bias, so she's forced to uncover more evidence before she'll even be believed. Jenny still agrees to print Perry's headline despite her own experiences and feelings. There are no voices of authority standing up for Superman in in the Senate hearing, and the voices in the media are far and few in between. None of the rich and powerful stand with or for Superman, and everyday people who believe in him and support him are shown to be frightened fragments, isolated and separated observers. By comparison, Superman's protesters collect to burn effigies and express their tangible anger. BVS is remarkable in how accurately it models the phenomenon of witch hunts. Now, If you're tempted to view yourself as one of Superman's supporters, ready to condemn the rest of them, take a second to reflect if this is that kind of story. In a film where our two greatest heroes find themselves mistakenly at odds, is this a film about a battle between good and evil people? Are we to assume that everyone who attacked Superman was, is, and always will be evil from cradle to grave? That they are wrong, evil, and enemies to be cast out before society can go on? Do these DC films present us with a picture of mankind as intrinsically corrupted and that everybody on the opposite side is irredeemably evil, to be written off forever because reconciliation, cooperation, and understanding is impossible and unthinkable? Or does BVS show us that even our greatest heroes can be misled and confused? If it could happen to them, how much more should we be skeptical of our own self righteousness, tribalism, division, and discord? Doesn't Wonder Woman show us that every heart is a mixture of dark and light? Are these films about defining common enemies, witch hunts, and deserving? Or are they about common humanity, grace? love and bridge building. One of the arch themes of these DC films is bridge building. People otherwise divided appeal to their common humanity and connection across the stars, across borders, across space and time, gender and culture, Man of Steel bridges two worlds with a shared son. Batman v Superman bridges two heroes and sons with a shared mother's name. Wonder Woman bridges the understanding between otherwise enemies with a shared love. They don't just reconcile with the other, but gain strength and wisdom from each other. Stronger, wiser, together. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was a genius of appealing to our shared humanity, calling upon unifying morals and values encoded into our collective religions. He relied on the metaphor of family, all races, creeds, and colors being his brothers and sisters. He put an emphasis on love and forgiveness, adapting the words of Jesus and echoing ancient wisdom across cultures, quote, Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. End quote. His inclusive approach did not demonize or divide. He looked to reunite and repair. And accordingly, he is one of history's most effective civil rights activists. Trite but true, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. So, let us not be weak. Easily triggered, unable to cope, always avoiding challenge, afraid of risk, while perceiving everything as an attack, threat, or disaster. Let's not fall victim to our feelings, acting automatically and unconsciously, accepting perceptions as truth, or living an unexamined life. Let us not divide into tribes, ready to call out sides or go to war over the smallest slight. Instead, let's learn from what these DC films show that we are strong enough to tackle tough truths and challenges which help us grow even stronger, that we are wise when reality and rationality rule over false feelings and distorted thoughts, and that we are at our best together, building bridges, believing, not in deserving, but in love instead. All right. Let's sum up this entire episode with a profound piece of Superman iconography. It appears in the middle of All-Star Superman, issue 10, from May 2008. It's widely shared as one of the most powerful pages in the Superman mythos. In five panels and in four lines, Superman saves a girl named Regan on the edge of an attempted suicide. Your doctor really did get held up, Regan. It's never as bad as it seems. You're much stronger than you think you are. Trust me. This has moved so many because we've known that same sense of loneliness and desperation to end our suffering. But our hearts ache to know that we're not alone, worth saving, and have hope. Superman saves simply by being there and speaking the truth. And somehow, it rings true that the soul and the spirit of Superman doesn't need superpowers or science fiction. That this, simple kindness, sincere sympathy, is all it takes to be Superman. Love like this leaps off the page and spreads hope into the real world, where we can see it for ourselves and show it to others without coming from Krypton. It's symbolic of Superman's compassion just when you need him most, so it's effective storytelling that hits hard. Mental health professionals may have different approaches or alternative techniques to recommend, but even as a stand-in for an idea, it still manages to capture volumes of unspoken truth. Our three lessons from this episode are affirmed stronger. You're much stronger than you think you are. Strength is the ability to withstand great force or pressure, suffering or trial. If you're suffering, you're alive. If you're withstanding, you're standing. And if you're standing even just barely, you're strong. She's carried this much pain all this time and is still standing. Superman believes she can and will stand another day. An unwavering faith in her ability to persevere past this means that there is hope past the pain, and to a time when she may know her own strength. Wiser, your doctor really did get held up. It's never as bad as it seems. You're much stronger than you think you are. The doctor's delay no doubt triggered these events. Superman gently disputes Regan's mind-reading or misunderstanding of the doctor's disappearance with the facts, reality, and truth. Regan's beliefs about the situation would have cascaded into a waterfall of negative consequences, painful feelings, leading to entertained, distorted thoughts, feeding into a loop of behavior leading her to the ledge of this building. You can imagine the negative filter catastrophizing and generalizing this pain into eternal torment. I'll never get better. It will always be like this. It will only get worse. And again, Superman gently rebukes the cognitive distortions, completely shaping her thoughts, feelings, and behaviors in the moment. He compassionately corrects her that reality is not as bad as her mind makes it out in the moment. It's never as bad as it seems. Her perceptions of reality have been distorted, and so too is her estimation of herself. You're much stronger than you think you are. In her present state, she could not trust her own thoughts or feelings, and this page acknowledges that. Instead, Superman says, Trust me. Together, Regan is not alone. Her doctor really did get held up and is still with her. Superman is there for her. Her own strength is there for her. Superman has addressed her perception. You may feel alone, lied to, abandoned, and betrayed, but your doctor was honest and with you. You may feel it's as bad as it's going to get, but don't trust how it seems. You may feel powerless and weak but don't trust how you feel. Know how strong you've been to endure. He replaces her narratives with reality, rationality, and truth. But after asking her not to trust her own perceptions, thoughts, and feelings, he asks her for now to place her trust in him. You don't need to sort fact from fiction right now. You don't need to be strong right now. You don't need to be alone. I'm here. Trust me. Be safe for now. We'll get through this together. And in turn, together, she grows wiser, stronger, and one day be able to help others using her experiences. One day. Eventually. Not yet. These films have suffered criticism for failing to have adapted this scene or something like it, but it forgets the context of the original story. All-Star Superman is the tale of the terminal Superman in his dying days, His words carry the wisdom and experience of a lifetime of adventures and good works as the unspoken successor to the Silver Age. On paper, we don't know him. But behind the ink and with a wink, we do. This is the mythopaic Superman. We've known him all our lives. So he can speak with authority to a total stranger and with the boldness to say, trust me, and expect it. Our film Superman is a different story and not quite there. It's the journey to authority to being trusted, to being somebody taken at their word. Tracing it out so we can follow it ourselves. All the foundations and the groundwork is there, but it takes more to get there in a more realistic universe with a more specific Superman, not using the larger mythos as a crutch or a shortcut to authority. And that's what's so compelling about these films, that very little is taken for granted and almost everything comes from a very real place. I've said it many times— Not every story has to be like this or should be, but it's special and notable when it is, and hopefully we'll keep on doing just that, noting it and sharing it whenever we can. Growing stronger, wiser together. (laughs) Okay, I've rambled on long enough, so thanks so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please share the show and subscribe. I'm Doc, signing off. See you next time. So this episode came together quickly out of the ashes of the original episode on cognitive biases. It's largely adapted from the work of Jonathan Haidt, who I've been reading for many years. And after several big shifts in real life, the stars basically have to align for me to have the time to put out an episode. (laughs) this episode was only recorded because we had an eight hour blackout. So I hope you understand that this episode isn't the product of months of iteration, but really the scraps of last minute recording. And even then I had to cut out about a half a dozen off topic, rambling and rants. I do want to disclaim that I'm not a mental health professional, but that help is available. You can find links and resources in the show notes. Nonetheless, I have seen the utility of these techniques firsthand and with those being counseled. I was taught a slightly different variation on the mnemonic, but it's basically still the same idea. Instead of ours, it was ABCDE, and diagnosis was ABC, and treatment was in the DE. During the diagnosis, you would look for A, the activating event, the trigger or situation, person or thought that starts the B. Beliefs, the cognitive distortions, irrational ideas, or error in thinking leading to the C, consequences, the bad reactions, emotions, and behaviors that bring the person in for counseling. Now, once you and the client are aware of the context, you can, together, move to treatment with D, disrupting the irrational beliefs, disassembling the distortions with evidence and reality to create E, effective new beliefs, replacing the distortions with truth. You work through this until it becomes second nature, and people get much better at thinking clearly, deliberately, and mindfully. They're less likely to get swept up by the whims of their unconscious or overwhelmed by their feelings. Okay, I have so much more that I want to share, but I just don't have the time. I have some songs to play you out. See you next time. You're the answer, son. Let's review what we learned about
13: type of therapy to change the way that you behave by changing what you think or fear or crave now what's important about CBT A focus on cognitive activity it says people can become different independent of their environment CBT what does it mean it's cognitive
4: behavioral therapy
13: CBT what does it mean it's cognitive behavior. That sounds so good! <laughs> <laughs> For example, if you have low self-esteem, you might use CBT and learn how to change those negative thoughts to positive ones like, damn, I'm a boss! <laughs> when you come in a therapy to other kinds like SFBT, you'll find some similarities. Like clients creating their own dreams But other things won't be the same CBT, is not an aim To find a few exceptions to The problem that's in front of you CBT, what does it mean? It's cognitive behavioral therapy CBT, what does it
2: mean? It's cognitive behavioral therapy You're the answer, son. If what I am is what's in me, then I'll stay strong, that's who I'll be. And I will always be the best me that I can be. There's only one me, I admit. Have a dream, I'll follow it. It's up to me to try. Oh, I'ma keep my head up high. Keep on reaching high. Never gonna quit. I'll keep getting stronger. And nothing's gonna bring me down oh. Never gonna stop, gotta go yeah. Because I know I'll keep getting stronger And what I am is thoughtful full. And what I am is musical what I am is smart And what I am is And what I am is right. powerful. And, and what I am is special There's nothing I can't achieve Because in myself I believe in those I'm Gonna keep on it to pile ah reaching high, never gonna quit, just keep getting stronger, and nothing's gonna bring us down, never giving up, gotta go, because I know I'll keep getting stronger, what I am is, what I am is, what I am is, what I am am is, is, what you are is, what you are is, nothing i can't achieve because of myself i've been you. going to hold my head up high keep on reaching high i'm never gonna stop i'll keep getting stronger nothing's gonna bring me down never give it up gotta go yeah i'll keep getting strong, you're the answer son